Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The conflict between Israel and Hamas seems to be escalating with no end in sight. At the time of recording, at least seven Israelis have died and dozens of Palestinians. The violence is horrible. The scene's horrific. It's spreading to Israel's streets where mobs of Arab Israelis, Jewish Israelis have, have beaten each other and have beaten civilians. It, it, the entire situation is horrific. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to talk about what is happening in Israel and Palestine and try to understand how we got to this point and why it seems like there's always some kind of conflict brewing between Israel and Hamas and the underlying issues never get resolved. I'm Zach Beecham here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Hey, morning. Hello, everybody. So um, this is very bad. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna start by saying that this is really, really horrible, and the scenes that I'm sure you listeners have seen coming out of both uh, Israel and Gaza are, are profoundly affecting, and it's just, just awful to witness. What we're gonna try to do on the show today is, is understand how this really terrible situation came to be, uh, both in sort of the immediate sense. What are the events that led up to the war? It seems like a war to me at this point. And the underlying, the deeper reasons why it keeps happening. So, Alex, I want to start with you on this for a little bit. What are, there's a series of events in Jerusalem that brought us immediately to this point. Yeah, I mean, the, there are a lot of causes here, which we'll get into. But the most immediate was, um, you know, there was a there's Jerusalem Day, which is a day celebrated by a lot of people in Israel to celebrate the annexation of, of East Jerusalem in the Arab-Israeli War, and. Basically, these marchers were trying to provoke. They go through the old city. They try to, through Arab neighborhoods. They try to provoke a lot of people into reacting, but also you know celebrate this capture. At the same time, there is a court case about evictions, moving Palestinians out of um, the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, where many of them live. And this has been a decades-long fight where you know U.S.-backed Israeli settler organizations basically say this is our land. We're going to move into it unless you pay a rent, this kind of stuff. Then on top of that, you've also had canceled Palestinian elections. You've had inconclusive Israeli elections. Like there was sort of this perfect storm of issues. And it sort of grows into this tense filled moment in which you have, uh, you know, everyone's kind of on high alert because of all these things happening. And you have Palestinians who are going to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is, um, you know, the third holiest site in Jerusalem for Muslims. And they go there to to pray during Ramadan. Well, they they are blocked on many occasions, but in, in this case, you know, they they make it. They're also sort of in a way demonstrating against Israeli police. And Israeli police do a pretty hand heavy handed move. They go in and they start battling with these Palestinians. And you need to know that there is a 
uh, power imbalance in just even on on this level, right? I mean, the, the what we saw was Israeli authorities were using rubber bullets and they had guns and they had shields and you know full full riot gear effectively, and Palestinians who were taking part in these protests were throwing rocks. So it wasn't a fair fight even on that. But this became um, sort of a, a big moment because of, of the location of, you know, the weeks of tension that boiled over into those scenes. And then Hamas, the terrorist group from Gaza that has been in charge since 2007 of, of that territory, uh, started launching rockets inside Israel. It nominally, they claimed, as like retaliation against the Israelis for those scenes that we witnessed. And that led uh, Israel to respond with uh, bombs, effectively. So there were like rock, unguided, you know, quote unquote, dumb rockets. They shoot them, they land where they land, whereas the Israelis have fighter jets and drones and precision guided missiles that where they can target very precisely. So again, more power mismatch. And that seemed to spark this current level of fighting. The reason I'm being a bit survey-y here is because there are still sort of certain scenes that we don't fully understand. There's a lot of crisscrossing narratives. There are a lot of um, events that happen, but that seems to be for the moment, and you know, this is a sort of first draft of history type deal, but for the moment, we believe that, it, that this is the story. There's been tension for a couple of weeks, the election problems, the, the Supreme Court case, the evictions, boiling over into a fight uh, at the mosque, leading Hamas to shoot rockets, leading Israel to retaliate, and that's why we are where we're at. But as I started this whole explanation, this is a deeper, deeper, deeper story. You're right, Alex. I think that's a, that was a really great kind of timeline sketch of of what kind of led up to this. Um, but each of like the individual incidents kind of culminated in this broader kind of fight. And we've seen this these kinds of disputes over the Al-Aqsa compound, right? For for years, this is one of the most you know sensitive and highly contested small pieces of land, probably in the world. Uh, again, you know, it's a it's a holy site for Jews and Muslims. And, you know, again, this was all happening. Remember also Eid Mubarak to, to my fellow Muslims. This is all happening amid Ramadan, um, which is, you know, the Muslim holy month. And so it kind of started off in the sense of, you know, this is Israeli police chief in Jerusalem, basically worried about these kind of tensions and put in these barriers and tried to block off this part of the area called the Damascus Gate this really historical, beautiful gate into the old city. And it's a place where, especially during Ramadan, a lot of Muslims like to come and, and hang out to break their fast uh, in the evenings and like drink coffee and kind of gather before, you know, prayers. And so they basically said, like, you guys can't do that. They cleared it out. And that caused a lot of, you know, anger saying, like, what do you mean? This is, we're like hanging out by our mosque. We're hanging out near the gate. Like, we're, we're not doing anything wrong. We're not like you can't just say that we're not allowed to gather here. Um, and so that created a lot of tension. And then you add in the protests that you mentioned over this kind of dispute uh, that was in the Supreme Court about evictions. Who has the rights to this um, land in East Jerusalem in this neighborhood called Sheikh Jarrah? And you kind of had all that tension going on. And so the police were on high alert, like you said. You had, you know, Palestinians and Arab Israelis and just Muslims just angry that they were being basically kicked out of, you know, and, and treated like they were a security threat because that's what they were being treated as, right? And there are questions, I think, about whether the relatively inexperienced police chief just 
screwed up royally here. They eventually lifted the ban um, and, you know, removed the barriers, but it was kind of a little too late, right? Um, and all these tensions were already going on. And then you also have this one other kind of, as as if this shouldn't get more complicated, um, you also have this ongoing... Are you suggesting that the Israel-Palestine conflict is, is complicated, Jen? I know. <laughs> Imagine that. You had these kind of sporadic but growingly and, and increasingly concerning attacks by these far-right Jewish extremists against Arabs um, that were happening. And you also had these kind of marches, like you talked about. Even before Jerusalem Day, you had these protests and small kind of gathering mobs of of far-right extremists, you know, shouting death to Arabs. And so it was just, you know, not to rely on on cliches here, but it was very much a powder keg growing in East Jerusalem. And people were aware of this, right? Like, there were people who were writing pieces in, you know, the media saying, look, there's a growing crisis here, y'all. We need to pay attention. A reporter, a friend of mine, Joyce Karam, wrote a piece saying that basically some Arab governments and officials had been reaching out to the Biden administration saying, you need to pay attention to this. Like, there's there's some stuff going on and we could really use, you know, you weighing in and maybe telling everyone to cool down here. Um, that didn't happen, it seems like. And things spiraled. I think it's important to note before we go any further that at the kind of very last minute in the evening, um, uh, when all this kind of was about to start, before the rockets fell, right? I think that's like the the moment the switched into full-on war when Hamas decided to send rockets into Jerusalem, which is a very serious Israeli red line, uh, and then firing them later at Tel Aviv and all over the place. The Netanyahu government, the Israeli government, tried to kind of actually de-escalate really quickly. Again, I think it was too little too late for many people. But, you know, that march that you talked about, that Jerusalem Day march where, you know, people were going to march, they were going to go through the Damascus Gate on purpose, right? But remember, like I had just said, you know, uh, Arab Muslims had been banned from hanging out at the Damascus Gate. So it's really provocative to allow that march to go through the Damascus Gate and go in that area, right? That's extremely provocative on purpose. And so Netanyahu said, no, 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 at the very end, like he, you know, rerouted the the, the permit for where they were allowed to go and said, you got to go in a different direction. We're not going to do this. You're trying to decrease tensions, and again, on purpose, and then eventually they actually canceled the the march entirely. But at that point, it was kind of too late. Hamas had said, you know, we want police to evacuate Al-Aqsa compound by, you know, a, a certain deadline tonight. If they don't, we were going to fire, you know, we were going to attack Jerusalem. Obviously, like, police are not going to leave the Al-Aqsa mosque compound. That's like one of the security, you know, fortress areas in probably the world. And... Then they decided, well, okay, we said we were going to hit, so they fired a bunch of rockets, and that's where we ended up with this ongoing war. I think I think it's important to try to analytically distinguish between all the Jerusalem stuff we've been talking about and the war, because while they're interconnected right. and they they obviously one sort of caused the other one, they're also emblematic of two different phenomena that have run into each other in this case. What was happening in Jerusalem is, is a essentially a, a question over the status of the city itself, right? All of these different things that Alex and Jen just ran through were really about, a, at the root of it, who the city is for, right? The Israeli far right, and in fact, many of people in mainstream Israeli politics now think that Jerusalem, all of it, should stay Israeli forever, even though in a two-state solution paradigm, 
East Jerusalem was always envisioned as, as the capital of a Palestinian state because it's very important to Palestinians in the same way that it's very important to Israelis. So the, these fights over Sheikh Jarrah, these shows of dominance through right-wing street groups showing up are a way of asserting that this land is Israeli and even trying to change the facts on the ground, that is to say literally removing Palestinians from Jerusalem in order to keep the city inside Israel and, and make it more and more difficult for the city to become at any point divided again between the two sides. That's one axis of conflict. It's one of the most significant ones in Israel-Palestine. But the way that that conflict played out between the two sides was primarily clashes between younger Palestinian men and Israeli police and, and also street battles with the with the thugs. And, and there was, I should say, lest this sound one-sided, there's also a trend on TikTok of Palestinian youth harassing and beating ultra-Orthodox men. So it's not just one side that was doing the harassment. But the point is, this is like a street battle type situation. And a lot of the Palestinian activism was demonstrations, nonviolent, the kind of thing that would garner a lot of international sympathy. And did, in fact, there's still... You, know, you can still see trends for save Sheikh Jarrah as a, as a hashtag, right? But what happened on the, the really important night of the conflict when Hamas fired the rockets is that Hamas kind of hijacked the issues, right? There was nothing requiring them to shoot those rockets. They wanted— right. Nobody was asking them for that. Right. They, they wanted this to turn into a conflict. They wanted, for a variety of different reasons, to make this about them. And about their conflict with Israel, which is a military conflict. And that's, again, not to say that Hamas is the only actor responsible for the war here or that they can be held responsible for Israel's extremely, extremely heavy response to the fighting. Right? Moral responsibility is complicated, and we will, I'm sure, talk about that more later in the show. But I'm not, right now I'm just trying to draw an analytical line right, as to what happened and why things changed. And it changed because Hamas wanted it to change. They wanted it to change for a variety of reasons, one of which is, as Alex referenced, the canceled Palestinian elections that they were likely to do well in. So, And Palestinians were mad that this was canceled. So Hamas wants to show Palestinians why they're popular, and that's the fact that they are the armed resistance to Israel, in part. Also, Fatah, the other major Palestinian faction, is corrupt and authoritarian, and that's why they canceled the elections. Um, the other reason that I've heard from experts is that Hamas didn't like that the protests in Jerusalem were protests that seemed to be garnering international sympathy. They want the axis of the conflict not to be between Palestinian demonstrators in Israel, but between armed Palestinians and Israel. They want it to be a military conflict because that's where their popularity comes. So sidelining the activists by turning it into a war is, is helpful for their political position. Am I reading this right? Because this is, this is sort of the sense that I've gotten both from reading media reports and talking to people who are, are real experts on internal Palestinian politics, but that, that's sort of my sense of it. The, I've got a slightly different read on this, Zach, and I know we talked to one <laughs> same expert, but I think we talked to other people as well. Um, the read I got is that there's been a general consensus, especially among Israelis, like among the Israeli military, that Hamas was kind of good with the game that it played, which is, you know, they're going to occasionally fire rockets, but they're not going to really escalate too much because... With Israel's support, and even under Netanyahu, like money comes in, um, you know, through Qatar and, and like jobs still happen. Like it's still a bad situation. Israel's still blockading Gaza, don't get me wrong. But like that Hamas was sort of benefiting 
from being seen as the the leader of Gaza from from some of these uh, from some of the help that Israel was giving. And so everyone sort of played within the rules of this game. No one believed that Hamas would want to escalate to this level. And like to us, we have I think we have to be very clear here, as we sort of alluded to, like no one was asking Hamas to send rockets. No one, they didn't need to get this involved um, in what was turning into uh, basically street brawls in Jerusalem. Bad, very bad street brawls, but like no, it didn't require, no one was clamoring for Hamas to like take it to Israel. And the fact that they've been shooting rockets and you know near Tel Aviv towards Jerusalem, near the Ben-Gurion airport, like that is an, an escalation that for many experts that I've talked to are like, look, the Israelis had to respond kind of in this way. I mean, maybe they've been heavy-handed, and I would say they have been. Uh, I think the images make that pretty clear, going after civilian um, buildings, even though they, you know, there's, that's apparently where some Hamas operatives were. But, like, that's sort of what I'm getting at. This was a surprise that Hamas decided to escalate. And again, it could be because of the elections that we've been talking about. It could be that they felt, you know, ignored to a certain extent. Maybe there's, we do know there's been a, a bit of a power struggle internally within Hamas for, for leadership. And maybe someone you know, kind of went rogue and was like, let's just, let's use this opportunity. We don't know. Again, this is sort of early days, but um, I, I think that everyone was caught sort of by surprise here. Israel was caught by surprise. Um, the U.S. was certainly caught by surprise. I know I'm going to talk about that in a bit. Um, and so, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I just don't think, I, I feel like, well, obviously there's the structural issues of this whole conflict, but Hamas decided to wade in pretty dangerously. And, and that seems to have been sort of the spark here. Yeah, I absolutely agree uh, on the surprise uh, factor. I mean, it is incredibly clear that nobody expected that Hamas would do this. I, I know for a fact there are Palestinians who also didn't expect this. There are Arab Israelis who didn't expect this. And the people who are protesting, a lot of them in Sheikh Jarrah, are not actually very thrilled that Hamas did this. Because, you know, as Zach said, Hamas has essentially now co-opted the entire fight and made it a fight about Israel and Hamas. Right. And that is a really different fight, right? Because Hamas, again, is a terrorist organization. They do also govern Gaza, so they're a bit of a hybrid organization. But they have an armed wing. They have a lot of weaponry, a lot of which they get from Iran. Like, they are not great guys. Um, they rule Gaza with an iron fist. They, you know, co-opt a lot of the aid, any kind of, you know, economic aid and infrastructure, like cement, everything that goes through Gaza goes through them. And they often take that and make it, you know, for their military uh, project rather than, I don't know, helping regular Gazans live their lives and build infrastructure and roads and houses and things like that. So they're not great, right? They, they carry out terrorist attacks. They bomb buses. They do very bad things. And so when you have the fight now against them, and they are firing rockets that are indiscriminately being fired at civilians in Israel, it makes it a very different story, right? You, it's, you can't really justify that if you're sitting, you know, as an observer, if you're in the international community or whatever, it's a lot harder to say, well, they had a valid grievance here, Israel is the bad guy, when you now have this. And that's the problem, because a lot of the, the Arab Israelis and the Palestinians who were protesting had a very, you know, serious, legitimate series of grievances that they were trying to get attention for and bring attention to. And they were trying to, you know, with Sheikh Jarrah, with the Israeli heavy-handed police tactics in, in East Jerusalem and, and in the Temple Mount area, 
And that's the problem, right? Because now what everyone's talking about is Israel and Hamas, and nobody's really paying attention to the fact that this was a largely, you know, peaceful, nonviolent kind of protest movement. Though Again, there was sporadic violence on a lot of sides. And that's what Hamas wanted, right? It made it about them. And so, yeah, I think nobody really expected that. And I think everyone is kind of scrambling to figure out why. And that's why we're being, I think, a little bit careful saying we think we know. Obviously, it's really hard to know what Hamas leadership is thinking, right? It's not It's not like, you know, I, I don't have a direct line to them. I, I don't think either of you do. So we're trying to figure this out kind of in real time. So I just want to be clear about that, right? This is, you know, unfolding as we speak. There are still bombardments going back and forth. And so I want to be a little bit careful in trying to, you know, read the tea leaves of what's going on. But Hamas clearly made a decision, and I, I want to make that clear. They made the decision to turn this into a war. Now, they did so for their own reasons and also because there were, you know, legitimate grievances that the Palestinians and Arab Israelis had at the time. But that's not really, it seems, why they totally did this. It's it's complicated, right? Because we the way we've been framing this is, like, primarily it's Hamas's fault. And, like, that is true. It is also true that it's Israel's fault in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I, I argued this in a piece on the site, but like ultimately something like this was going to happen. Whether or not Hamas had decided to escalate at this point, they would have at another point. And like, why why were they going to do that? Because of the fundamental nature of the, the situation in Gaza, right? Israel has for a very long time imposed a blockade on Gaza that has made life very, very difficult for Palestinians living there and has, you know, intentionally, like this is the point of the blockade, undermined Hamas rule by making people unhappy and miserable there and, and limited their ability to, uh, you know, govern on the basis of we're doing a good job as a government. So Hamas's response to this is to periodically engage in war with Israel, which boosts their own popularity because the Palestinians are going to blame Israel for Israel bombing them as opposed to Hamas for starting the war. And can also be used to, during negotiations, typically with Egypt afterwards, to leverage concessions out of Israel that at least temporarily lessen the blockade. Now, this time around, they're not demanding any blockade easement so far, but— That we know of. That we know of. <laughs> we, don't, we don't know what they're saying behind, behind closed doors. But the point is, like, that this is, like, this is an endless loop. As long as the blockade is in place, as long as Hamas is in power and separated from the Palestinian Authority and the West Bank— they're going to need to use violence to maintain their hold on power, and that is not to morally excuse them. It is to say that Israel has created a policy deliberately in which something like this is going to happen over and over and over again. And Israeli leadership knows this. They're very smart people. They're not idiots. They know that this is going to happen, and they've deemed it, even if they were surprised in by the timing of when this happened, they've deemed it basically an acceptable cost of the status quo, that periodically they will have to go to war with Hamas uh, to mitigate the rocket threat. And they're unwilling to take the risks of easing the blockade and promoting Palestinian reconciliation. And so they, they've set the stage for this by virtue of their overarching policy with respect to Gaza and the West Bank. And then when the war does happen, they respond with force that is, I don't want to say disproportionate exactly, because that's sort of a term of art in international law that would point towards it being a war crime. And I'm not actually sure that's right. But it's hard to say that there's any kind of equivalency of force here, right? And a lot more Palestinian civilians die. And, you know, they're they're bombing in heavily populated, densely populated places in Gaza 
and the the civilian casualties are inevitable as much as Israel tries, and it does try to its credit to avoid civilian casualties. It's going to happen, and they know it's going to happen. So does that excuse it? I, I think it's it's an extremely difficult question morally, but ultimately, I think it's an easy call to blame Israeli policy for the underlying dynamics that got us to this place. Yeah, I just want to add one quick thing here, um, and that's partially why Israel thinks that it is more or less acceptable to have this periodic outbreak of violence. And I think that's, the answer is Iron Dome. And Iron Dome is the, you know, anti-missile defense system that protects Israel. Um, it is incredibly sophisticated, state-of-the-art, very effective. And you could see videos all over social media from the last several days that make it clear how effective it is. And you basically see missiles coming in and then you see these interceptors going up in the air and meeting them. And intercepting the missiles before they land. And so because Israel has this, you know, military superiority and this protection, a whole bunch of the missiles that are fired from Gaza don't actually make it through and kill as many people as it would without Iron Dome. And I think, again, it's not to say that this one piece of defense equipment is responsible for this conflict, right? That's incredibly simplistic. But as Zach said, when these fights break out, you know, Palestinians in Gaza and elsewhere don't have this technology, right? And so the the death toll is always far, far higher on the Palestinian side than the Israeli side. It's not to say that some missiles don't get through. They do. And that's what we've seen with people in Israel dying. Um, I should also note that it's not always Jewish Israelis who die in these missile strikes. Um, there are Arabs, Arab Israelis who were killed in this most recent fight by Hamas. So Again, getting back to, you know, the issue of Hamas, uh, whether they're actually doing this on behalf of uh, the people they say they're doing this on behalf of is <laughs> an open question. But anyway, I think it's just important to note that that's part of why. I mean, it, it might make, you know, sound weird on its face to be like, what do you mean it's okay to just randomly go to war every once in a while? And that's because Israel is so militarily superior that it bears a lot lower cost in going to war. I'm going to take uh, one of our headline focus groups into the podcast because Zach's piece, which is very good, you should all read it and we'll link to it in the show notes, called The Gaza Doom Loop. I suggested something along the lines, I'm forgetting the exact title, but it was, it was like the war that, you know, Israel and, and Hamas wanted. And and Zach and others were like, no, this is bad. Do not use this headline. And like, I respect that. But the reason I, I, I sort of suggested that is because what I'm hearing both of you say is that everyone knows a conflict like this could arise and yet no one is really making moves to stop it from happening because the incentives to either like Netanyahu to you know help settlers and and keep taking Palestinian territory for Hamas to um you know send rockets into Israel and to keep uh, a tight grip over Gaza like if that is the choices they make then they then they choose conflict like that that is this that is a choice in my mind, um, if you do nothing to stop like the worst from happening, then it's kind of on you. So I know no, I know like Hamas and Israel aren't like I want a war today. I'm very aware of that, but I'm wondering if, and maybe I'm overreading it, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. But like, it just seems to me that they are. I get that there are like political incentives and structural incentives, and like I, I'm all for that. But at the end of the day, you know, political leaders have choices to make. And it seems like no one's making the ones that can stave off this kind of conflict. Yeah, it's not a question of like directly wanting. Like that's that's I, 
Yeah. Is it, I, right. It's I agree not, I overstepped. I was, I was being provocative on purpose. Yeah. It's it's that the status quo is the least bad option for everybody. For Well, for most factions. Like, for some factions, this is actually pretty good. So, like, obviously Hamas would prefer to be able to expand its presence in the West Bank as well. But being able to be the, you know, the the defender of Palestinian rights through armed resistance is its whole thing. It's what separates it from Fatah primarily, which runs the Palestinian Authority in conjunction with Israel, rather than really resisting and opposing it in some kind of organized way. Uh, you know, that that is a good situation for them. This is also a great situation for Israeli extremists, right? If you are uh, someone who thinks that Israel deserves all of the land and should take all of it and should annex it, then keeping the Palestinians divided between Fatah and Hamas ensures that there's no particularly effective peace process going on. It's very difficult to negotiate when you have two factions representing the opponents or representing the other side that hate each other and can't come to an agreement on something. And you, you know, you minimize the military threat and you create conditions under which it's easy for you to steal more and more land from Palestinians in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. And that's ultimately what they want, is to change the facts on the ground such that a two-state solution becomes harder and harder and harder to envision. So this works great for them. It works great for those two extremist groups, Hamas and the settlers. And other factions, the Palestinian Authority and uh, you know the sort of center-right Israeli establishment, are basically okay with it because it minimizes risk, political and security risks to them, though it doesn't solve any long-term problems. Uh, there's a great term that Israeli scholar Natan Sachs calls uh, non-solutionism in Israeli thinking, which is like, we don't solve the problems. We just mitigate the risks and we punt the underlying solutions down the road and don't feel like a need to deal with them right now. And that that is the dominant thinking in the Israeli political mainstream right now. Not, you know, we, we, ha- we think the status quo is a solution, just that it's an acceptable non-solution. And that is why there's so much inertia right now on the Israeli side anyway, even though they're rightly horrified that Israeli civilians are dying in these rocket attacks, it's just, it's a necessary cost of the current strategy. Um, so we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to get deeper into the dynamics of the conflict, uh, including the international dynamics, uh, what specifically the United States' role in all of this might be. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. 
Welcome back, worldly listeners. We've been talking about the fighting in Israel and Gaza right now uh, and trying to understand how this happened and the the both the immediate circumstances and the underlying structural conditions that brought us to this point. A lot of what we've been talking about is how this kind of cycle of violence keeps happening over and over again. And why, while the causes of this may have been immediate, ultimately the groundwork was laid by the fundamental nature of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict right now. One thing that is relatively novel, I say relatively because it's happened before, but not in the past two decades, is the large-scale violence that you're seeing on Israeli streets, Israeli against Israeli, primarily gangs made up of uh, Jewish extremists and Israeli Arabs, uh, respectively, attacking civilians from the opposite group. This is not something that typically happens during these Gaza flare-ups. When you talk to analysts about it, they they go back to the dark days of the Second Intifada, which was uh, the Palestinian uprising after the failures of the peace process in uh, around the year 2000, and that led there were mass suicide bombings inside Israel, Israeli ground war in the West Bank and Gaza. It was uh, awful. Tensions were incredibly high. It was one of the bloodiest periods in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict ever. Lots of people were dying, and there there was this kind of street violence. But this is just not a recent feature. Of Israeli society. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's important to, to be careful here, right? There are lots of sporadic incidents that happen with, in particular, Jewish settlers attacking, you know, maybe Palestinians, and we're talking in, in the West Bank area, so not necessarily Israel proper. And there are, again, you know, low-level, you know, incidents that happen, and I think in particular between Israeli police and, and Arab Israelis that do happen fairly consistently. But yes, I think you're seeing, you know, the widespread kind of communal violence that we're seeing in Israel proper is not something that we are used to seeing and certainly not at this level, right? There are full-on kind of lynch mobs uh, roaming the streets in several cities across Israel on both sides. You know, you can see horrific videos of a Jewish extremist mob essentially lynching just a, a random Arab citizen and then, you know, two seconds later, you could see another video that's the, essentially the reverse, right? And so I think that is an element of this that is extremely worrying because it goes beyond that Hamas-Israel dynamic that we were talking about and goes back to something that is rotten inside Israel proper and inside Israeli democracy and Israeli society. Um, Zach, you and I were talking about this before. In general, and and again, it's really hard to generalize anything, right, especially in this conflict. But in general, you know, Arab citizens of Israel are citizens of Israel and feel that they are Israelis. Now, there is systemic discrimination against Arab Israelis, absolutely, in all sorts of ways, economically, linguistically, politically, etc. But yet, they there doesn't tend to be this kind of narrative that like we are we are outsiders and to a large extent despite a kind of i guess low level current of of mistrust that has been growing in in decades and that's what we're going to talk about the jewish citizens of israel tend to see the arab israelis as their neighbors right they they are part of israel they are separate from the palestinians who you know want their own state these are arab citizens of israel and so in general this is a community that is you know, lived together in Israel relatively stably for for years. Again, it's hard to generalize. You know, there is significant racism and discrimination, but 
nothing like what we're seeing in the last several days with these roving kind of street gang violence. That is something that is is new in recent decades and is extremely, extremely troubling. And I think raises a lot of questions about what is happening in Israeli society that has created this. I mean, one of the the worrying features in the past several years of Israeli politics has been a move by the ruling government uh, to stigmatize Arab Israelis, right? So at one point during one of his many re-election campaigns, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warned Jewish voters that the Arabs were going to the polls, quote-unquote, in droves, and that this was a threat to them, right? That there was something bad about Arab political participation in the Israeli political system. Uh, under his rule, the government also passed what's called the nation-state law, which is uh, a piece of legislation that essentially defines Israel as a state for its Jewish citizens. The language in the actual text is, is cagier than this, but it does define Israel as the nation-state of the Jewish people, and that implicitly, if not explicitly, excludes Arabs from being first-class citizens. And this is to compound longstanding discrimination uh, reinforced uh, both by law and de facto against Arabs, giving Jews privileges that Arabs don't have. Uh, and while Israeli Arabs see themselves as citizens, they are, you know, their their political factions are very, very alienated from the Israeli political system. So prior to what's happening right now, you had for the very first time uh, an Israeli Arab party being considered seriously as a part of a, an Israeli governing coalition. They, you know, that doesn't happen typically because these parties see themselves as separate and distinct from the Jewish parties that make up the majority of Israel's Knesset. And that that was a real step and a pushback against the things that have been happening in the past few years and the, the divisive politics that have pitted Jew against Arab inside Israel. Uh, but now this this conflict with Gaza, this is the biggest one since 2014, seems to have ignited the feeling of separation on the part of Israeli Arabs and marginalization, and at the same time, seems to have given a green light to the far-right factions of Israeli society who have never liked that Israel has Arab citizens to go after them. Uh, and so it's it's a very, very, very dangerous dynamic when you have people inside that country fighting on the streets and attacking each other on, on communal and sectarian lines. It, it, it's hard to overstate what this could do for the the sort of health of the Israeli political system and, and for the, the status of the Arabs in Israel, even after the, the shooting in Gaza is done. So I'm a little skeptical in the immediate term of like outside powers to help, right? I mean, it, it, we usually when we would discuss something like this, it's pretty clear that this is a Israel, Hamas, or Islamic Jihad, like Israel-Gaza type fight, but the, the internal dynamics here make it harder for like Egypt and the UAE and others to kind of tell Hamas to calm down and the U.S. to tell, you know, Israel to back off. Um, they do have a role to play, don't get me wrong, but um, it like the, the, an immediate effort, which we which is happening behind the scenes, but an effort along those lines is just going to make it harder because, you know, a lot of people inside of Israel and West Bank are being like, no, they, they don't speak for me. I got other, <laughs> I got more local issues to focus on. That said, outside actors don't have to necessarily make the problem worse. Or at least they can at least faint to try to make things better. I think one of the, and this is where I'll mention the U.S., like one of the criticisms so far about the Biden administration is that anytime they're saying anything about this conflict, more often than not, what they'll say is like, well, Israel has a right to defend itself. 
Which, okay, fine. Like, that's basically saying, like, a government has a right to collect taxes. Like, it's just, you know, a normal sort of statement to make. It's not particularly enlightening. And then they will fail to say anything about the Palestinian cause here, which is, as we talked about earlier, like, part of what instigated this was the evictions issue, the fact that Israel's been moving in, in into parts of the West Bank, settlers, um, the power imbalance, like, there's a genuine grievance, not only in this specific issue, but in the conflict writ large. And we're not really hearing that. I mean, other than than White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, you know, once, and I should say in a fairly decent statement, basically saying, look, these are, the, the Palestinians have grievances here. She did mention the evictions. She mentioned a whole bunch of other things. Like that was meant, that was said, but, you know, Tony Blinken isn't saying stuff like that. The Secretary of State, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan isn't really coming out and saying things like that. They're, they're, they're noted sort of, to the side in in readouts of things. Um, and, and President Joe Biden, the only time he has spoken about this, which was on Wednesday, when which he said like, yeah, I spoke to Netanyahu and I told him, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but you're allowed to protect yourself and we'll support you and whatever you need. Not a peep about the Palestinians. And it, it strikes me, it, it's striking for two reasons. One, actually just a domestic thing, is like Democrats have moved to the quote unquote left on Israel. And I, and I know that, that that's sort of a, an old spectrum. But really what, what people mean when they say that is that now you have Democrats mentioning the Palestinian issue along with the Israeli issue. It used to be sort of more robotic. You just said Israel has a right to secure itself and you rarely, if ever, mention the Palestinian side. Now they do. Like you're seeing moderates like Senator Chris Van Hollen. You're seeing Bernie Sanders, who, who would occasionally, see, who would say this fairly regularly before. Um, you've got members of the squad, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, um, you have Jamal Bowman, which I think is, is kind of a fascinating thing. He took uh, Elliot Engel's seat in New York, and Elliot Engel is one of the staunchest supporters of Israel in Congress. And now he's sort of, you know, making comments about the Palestinians. So as Democrats are moving to the quote unquote left on this issue, Biden is staying put, at least for now. We haven't really seen him move. And then the other thing here is, another reason it's jarring, is that the Biden administration has been I mean, they can't, they don't, they can't stop saying this. Human rights is at the center of our foreign policy. Like, you know, it won't be the only thing that they do, but whenever they make a foreign policy decision, they'll have two things in mind. One, the American worker, and two, human rights. Um, it seems like the human rights part extends as up to, like, Palestinians. <laughs> um, because they're not taking this to heart. Um, granted, there are sort of other reasons why, perhaps, they're focusing on domestic issues, they're working on the Iran deal that, that Israel hates. Um, they're trying to get, quote unquote, out of the Middle East. But like, it, does, it doesn't even, it's not even that hard for, like, I could write the statement for Biden now. Um, you know, we are a staunch supporter of Israel, and we believe that Israel has a right to defend itself in these cases, but we also implore on the Israelis to, um, you know, consider the plight of the Palestinians as regards to evictions and uh, the power mounts. Like, it's not hard. Like, I can sort of draft it right now in, in real time, um, and yet they're not doing it. And so it's it's a it's an important thing to keep in mind because outside actors do have some influence here. The U.S. doesn't have all of it, right? It doesn't really talk to Hamas. That's really, um, but it can do a lot on the Israeli side, and they're just not. I think it's really important to talk about for a second here. You know, the Biden administration, whether they want to admit it or not, has been very pretty hands off and, and trying to stay out of this this conflict, right? They they don't see. Uh, you know, a lot of prospects for two-state solution, for peace process, and they have a lot of other stuff going on. The fact that, you know, it took quite a while for Biden to actually speak to Netanyahu uh, about this issue uh, is pretty telling. But here's the thing. 
you can't just start right now and just wash your hands of a conflict that the U.S. has been an integral player in for literal decades. Yeah. And that's the problem here, is that you can't just say, oh, sorry, we're not really interested here, when a huge portion of the status quo is in part due to the way the U.S. has pursued peace negotiations in the past between the Israelis and Palestinians. And by that, I mean, you know, we talked earlier about kicking the can down the road and how, you know, the Israeli kind of approach at this point is basically don't solve anything, don't, you know, deal with underlying issues, just kick the can down the road, deal with the kind of surface level stuff, and we'll, we'll deal with that later. That's also been more or less how the two-state solution peace negotiation peace process has dealt with this issue in the sense that there are things called final status negotiations and final status issues. And what they mean is that in these different various agreements between the Israelis and the Palestinians that the U.S. and others have helped broker over the years, they basically said, look, we're going to try to agree on a whole lot of things, but we're going to leave a few of these really big issues till the final status. We'll push that down the road. And one of those things, importantly for what we're talking about today, is Jerusalem and the status of Jerusalem, the status of East Jerusalem. Now, just to remind everyone, I know we've been talking about it a lot, but Palestinians would like Jerusalem to be, you know, the future capital of their state. Israelis also see Jerusalem as the eternal capital of Israel. That's a problem when two different people want to claim an entire city. And so the idea is essentially to divide it. Well, that's really complicated because you can't really just draw a line down the center of a city. There are people who live on both sides. There are long-standing issues in terms of, you know, claims, as we're seeing in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood, who has claims, who who has the rightful claim to this piece of land, to this house, to this neighborhood. But the kind of general working approach has been to leave those issues to, to the both sides, and they will work that out once we've had a kind of agreement on broader issues related to settlements and land swaps and all kinds of different things in the West Bank and who's going to be in charge of what and what's the security situation, right? They essentially dealt with a lot of other stuff and left the the most thorny issues till later. And that's what we're seeing the problem play out is that if you don't deal with those issues, and we haven't, then you can't really have any kind of agreement on anything else because you're going to keep having flare-ups of violence. You're going to keep having conflict. And so the U.S. has been very much, you know, the reason that the U.S. has kind of, you know, the U.S. has never been an even-handed player in this conflict. I think it's important to, to make that really clear. We've always been on the side of Israel, but we have also used that to basically argue that, well, that's good because that means we can bring Israel on side. We can push Israel to make those concessions to the Palestinians that other people can't because we help guarantee Israeli security. That's been basically the the bargain. That's been why the U.S. has been the biggest player in these peace negotiations, one of them at least, Egypt and, and Jordan as well, but mainly the U.S. pushing this. The problem that we're seeing now, as Alex was just laying out, is that the Biden administration is saying, uh, not really our problem, right? Okay, they're not saying that officially. But I think it's pretty clear that that's the sense that you're getting mm, from everyone. I'm not sure that's right, to be honest. Like, they are, you had Jen Psaki on Wednesday say they're doing 25 calls. They're sending a, a State Department person over to talk to officials. Like, they are trying to play a part in this. I just think they were caught by surprise. And then on top of that, they should be, um, you know, bl- blasted for this. Like, they don't have an ambassador to Israel. They don't have a special envoy from the Middle East Peace Process. I think it's true that they tried to be, like, a bit hands-off. But I don't think it's, I'm, I mean, at least in my mind, I don't think it's fair to say they've 
like they aren't trying to be involved. I think they are, but their leverage is very minimal because they haven't prepared for this. Well, I think I think there's a way to split the difference between your two positions, which is that, Alex, you're right, that they're scrambling to try to do something about the immediate crisis. Jen, I think, is clearly correct that this is not the like overall framework of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is not yeah, a priority fair. for the administration, yeah. right? They, <laughs> no, that's they, so, totally they, fair, yeah. They think that it is, I mean, I'm not going to put words in their mouth, but it is clear from their actions that they think a major push on Israeli-Palestinian diplomacy is not a top-level strategic priority for the United States. That it is I mean, not they told me to that. Work. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's just like yeah, they, they like told me that. It's, it's peripheral to it. There you go. Yeah, they even told me before Biden got into office, they were like, "We are not going to do a two-state solution. Like, it's it's too broken under Trump. The best we can do is just like try to get them back to the table." That that was their overall big strategy goal over four years, but it didn't work out for them already in the first couple of months. Yeah, I mean, th- that's the underlying problem here, right? Is like people talk about Israel-Palestine sometimes as like a, a quasi-frozen conflict where everything's stuck. And it's not going to change, and things are just going to keep going in the direction that they're going, and that's it. And, and you can sort of not think about it. And you know, for a lot of time in recent Middle East conversations, it's been relatively peripheral to things like the rise of ISIS and the the sort of shadow war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Um, what we're seeing now, I think, is is the reassertion of the conflict through obvious, spectacular, and horrifying violence. But we're also seeing that the United States can't, like, by virtue of what it has done for a very long time, can't just sit this out without incurring reputational costs for itself and without enabling a status quo that strikes being a lot of other people as deeply, deeply, deeply immoral, right? The U.S. provides billions in security aid to Israel. It it just, like, during this conflict, protected Israel from uh, movement in the U.N. Security Council that uh, they did not like uh, on the conflict. The United States is constantly doing things that are, you know, keep maintaining Israel's ability to operate with relative impunity in the international sphere and strengthening its military. Like, the, the, America is culpable for Israel's approach, particularly to the West Bank, which is just enabling the settlement movement, who only represent a, a tiny fraction of Israelis, to continue to take parts of Palestinian land, push them off of it, and ultimately undermine the prospects for a two-state solution in the long term, making it harder and harder and harder, and and moving Israel towards a situation that two major human rights groups, Human Rights Watch and B'Tselem, Israel's leading uh, human rights group in the occupied territories, have both labeled apartheid. Not like will become apartheid in the future, like already is, in the sense that Israel governs the Palestinians functionally in the West Bank and does not give them equal rights to the Jews that live there, which is a formal situation and separation of people by virtue of their ethnicity or race and religion. You can dispute HRW and B'Tselem's characterization. I think there are certainly major points of difference between what Israel is doing and apartheid South Africa. But the point is, the United States has allowed this situation especially under Trump, and arguably encouraged the situation to go down that road, to move closer and closer and closer to things getting worse. And the Biden people can say it's not a top-tier strategic priority for the United States. They may well be right, given the variety of other different things that are going on in the world, coronavirus, rise of China, et cetera. But that doesn't make them not complicit in what has been happening inside Israel and the occupied territories. If you follow this issue more, dear listener, um, you know, you're reading our articles or you decided to sort of Google some stuff, you're going to see or hear an argument, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think it's important. You're going to, you're going to see or hear an argument that um, Biden squandered the opportunity Trump left him with the Abraham Accords. And remember that the Abraham Accords were 
uh, or still are, ag- normalization agreements between Israel and, and Arab countries, the UAE, Sudan, Morocco, et cetera, that, you know, basically like after years of not those countries not recognizing Israel, now they do. And what you're hearing from Trump folks is like, that was a p- part of the peace process, right? And on top of that, Trump offered a peace plan that the Israelis agreed with and the Palestinians didn't, but like they moved further on this issue and they helped solve this issue and and, and uh, more than, than than any other administration. And that's just like not the case, right? Um, on the Abraham Accords, it had nothing to do with the Palestinian issue. That was always the, the, the key flaw of the whole thing is that, yeah, fine, you sort of improved ties between Israel and the, and the United Arab Emirates. Now you have people from the UAE taking selfies inside Tel Aviv, cool, um, but it does nothing about the Palestinian issue. And then on the peace plan, like, yeah, Netanyahu agreed with it, but that's because it was basically Trump gave him everything he wanted and the Palestinians did not engage in the diplomacy because of a whole bunch of other reasons, which that was their choice. But also they were never going to agree with what was on offer anyway after Jared Kushner's uh, book report. So this is still out there. And I want to be clear that it's not like Biden squandered some sort of golden opportunity to improve on this. The Trump years made it worse. But the Obama years also didn't make it better. The Bush years didn't make it better. The Clinton years, like it's, there were some gains made, but Biden was dealt a bad hand. What he did squander, I guess, was the opportunity to at least wade in early, have a shot at shaping this, have a shot at being a player. And they just sort of spent the first couple of months hanging out. Again, not appointing an ambassador, not appointing a special envoy, paying very little attention to this issue at large, barely calling, you know, calling Netanyahu late. They're now moving because they have to. And so I, I don't think they squandered an opportunity in terms of like what Trump left them, but they squandered an opportunity to get involved before it got worse. And now they're playing catch up. Yeah, I just want to tie that all kind of back to the point that I was making earlier when we we're talking about kicking the can down the road and not dealing with the underlying issues. That is exactly what the Abraham Accords did. They essentially said, look, we're not even going to try to deal with like the Israeli-Palestinian issue. What we're going to do is we're going to skip over that and just try to make these agreements and normalize relations between all these other kind of Arab Muslim majority countries and Israel and try to kind of get around that way. And, you know, they made the argument that this would eventually maybe sort of kind of help loosen some areas and maybe make it easier to get a peace process going again. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, but it was really vague. And anybody who looked at it, and we actually talked about it on, on our show previously, it arguably put the Palestinians in an even tighter box and specifically also Hamas, right? Because, you know, if the Palestinians, specifically in Gaza, are continuing to, you know, feel like they have international support from all, you know, the Arab world and from, you know, these big, powerful, rich countries like UAE, et cetera, that is something that enables them to, you know, kind of continue to try to, uh, well, one, to continue to, you know, survive in Gaza, et cetera, getting money and and aid like that. But it also, you know, makes it look like they have somebody in their corner fighting on their side. Now, when you have all of these countries, and not all of them, Saudi Arabia, et cetera, hasn't, but when you have a lot of these countries all of a sudden signing these deals with Israel and saying, no, we're totally cool with Israel, it's understandable that Hamas uh, and, you know, Palestinians they claim to represent would say, well, wait a second, what about us? Like, what the hell? Who, who's ha- who has our back? And the answer <laughs> of who has their back, specifically with Hamas, is Iran. And the way Iran has their back is with weaponry and violence and by, you know, essentially arming and helping Hamas have a military organization. 
And so, you know, this kicking the can down the road saying we're not going to deal with the Palestinian issue, we're going to deal with other issues. You know, there were some of us, uh, I'm not going to toot my own horn here, but I was one of them saying this could very well, you know, be bad for the Palestinians down the road and lead to a flare-up of violence. There was also, and I think I also made this counter argument too, because let's just make both sides, that, you know, it could have also led the the Palestinians to sue for peace and basically say, look, we're losing all the support. It's time to just like cut our losses. Uh, That's not Hamas's style. And I think we're seeing that now, that Hamas, I think that's part of why you know, a a broader calculation, but I think that's one piece of why Hamas did what it did is that it knows that all it really has left is this kind of military, you know, fight. And by bringing that fight, it can bring the attention back to the Palestinian issue outside of the other kind of normalization agreement. So I think, again, the U.S. failure to try to really force both sides to deal with the underlying issues has, again, led to this resumption of conflict. It's a perfect place to leave you. Um, I, I want to thank our producer, Sophie Lalonde, for all of her hard work in getting this episode out to all of you. And I, I want to encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, we're there. And uh, with that, we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye, and also listen to our sister podcast, Today Explained, just doing an episode on this conflict as well. <laughs> <laughs>